That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Good morning, everyone, and happy Friday. If you haven't figured it out, this is not Bill Press. This is Chris Liu guest hosting for Bill on a Friday morning here in Washington, D.C., from our studios on Capitol Hill. Uh, I am pleased to be here. I am a uh, frequent guest, sometimes host, uh, joined by Bill's trusty sidekick producer, Ray. Good morning, Ray. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about on this Friday. If you all have not heard, uh, Election Day is coming up, and there's a lot at stake in the ballot. We'll be talking about those issues with um, some friends and uh, distinguished guests. Uh, in the first half hour, we will have Austin Evers, who is the executive director at American Oversight, which is conducting a lot of the uh, outside oversight and investigations of the Trump administration, uh, particularly in lieu of a Republican Congress that has basically been derelict in their oversight responsibilities. Uh, Austin has been on before, and he'll be coming in at the 730 hour to talk about some of the issues that he is focusing on. Uh, at 8 o'clock, uh, we have my congressman and Ray's congressman, uh, Don Beyer, from the, uh, we, we never say the state of Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia, the 8th Congressional District, uh, Congressman Beyer has been a friend and guest and uh, has been a champion of so many wonderful progressive issues uh, throughout his entire career. He'll be here at the 8 o'clock hour um, talking again about the issues at stake in this midterm, uh, but also giving us a, a little bit of an uh, insider's view of what happens this last uh, period of time before Election Day, what's going through candidates' mind, uh, why GOTV get out the vote matters, uh, why people are still bugging you by email for more money uh, into the final um, hours of a campaign. So that will happen at 8 o'clock this morning. And then at 8.30, another frequent uh, guest and friend of the show, Rebecca Vallis. Rebecca is with the Center for American Progress. She's vice president for Poverty to Prosperity Program at the Center. And um, uh, we're going to look forward to talking to her. Uh, we... <laughs> We didn't plan this out, but at 8.30 today, we also get the monthly jobs number. So we'll be kind of reading them out in real time at 8.30. And then Rebecca and I can sort of do our 
color commentary about what this means and what the state of the economy is, particularly as we come into these uh, midterm elections. And so it's a busy morning. Uh, Chris Liu filling in uh, a little bit about me. I did, uh, t- <laughs> I'm old enough now to say I did 20 years of politics uh, in the House of Representatives, the Senate. Uh, I work with President Obama in the Senate, uh, ran his presidential transition, then managed his cabinet in the first term of the uh, Obama administration, and then became the Deputy Secretary of Labor. Uh, I am now a senior fellow at the Miller Center uh, for Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, a wonderful institution that studies the presidency. And you can follow me on Twitter at ChrisLu44, and you should subscribe to the Bill Press Show on YouTube at uh, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. So I have to say, I, I'm trying not to watch the TVs in the studio. Although, I know they're always distracting, right? And, and as scary as uh, Donald Trump stoking fears about immigration as a segment that CNN ran at the very tail end of the last hour, which was viral videos of parents uh, tricking their kids by basically emptying out their candy containers from Halloween. So the kids would go and look at their buckets, their pumpkin buckets, and they'd see nothing there. And all it was was crying children. I'm like, this is kind of horrible. It's a nightmare to wake (laughs) up to. That's like both for the children and then for you. You're like having your morning coffee, just watching a montage of children screaming and crying. And, and, you know, look, it's a horrible thing. I, I guess it's I don't have kids, so at some level it's kind of funny to me. But it's a horrible thing to do to your child. And what's especially horrible is that you not only did that, you actually took video of it and then put it online so CNN could run it. I mean, that is really it's as terrifying as anything. Uh, but we are uh, we're set. We're going to have some fun conversation today. We're going to talk about the importance of the elections, and we'll be back shortly. On your radio, on TV, and online. This is The Bill Press Show. Good morning, everyone. This is Chris Liu subbing in for Bill Press on a Friday morning from Washington, D.C. From the studio right off Capitol Hill, I am joined by... Bill's producer, Ray. Good morning, Ray. Good morning, Chris. So glad to have you back. Well, it is fun to be here. Uh, and I will, you know, I, 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 Peter Ogburn's not here. So I'll say I enjoy doing this more with you, Ray, than with Peter. So thanks. Peter might be listening. <laughs> he always listens when he's out. So, Peter, I love you. I miss you. I, Peter, I hope you're sleeping in if you're not, you know, not in the studio. Uh, Chris Liu, uh, I'm a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. A former Obama administration uh, appointee. I managed President Obama's cabinet for four years back when we actually were focused on the people's work and not enriching ourselves. We'll be talking a little bit about the continuing ethics issues of Trump cabinet members. Uh, then became the Deputy Secretary of Labor, and uh, that the timing of that is quite perfect since at 8.30 today we will be getting the monthly jobs number, so we'll be talking about them on air and uh, a frequent now a guest of this show and also a a constant tweeter. So I will uh, make a shameless plug. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can follow me at ChrisLu44, that's C-H-R-I-S-L-U-44. And obviously, please subscribe to The Bill Press Show uh, at youtube.com slash 
the Bill Press Show, and obviously follow the show at BP Show. Uh, we've got a great set of guests in today. Uh, we are now uh, four days away from what could literally be the most important uh, election uh, of our lifetimes, and I know that it is just a very common thing to say. And so what I wanted to do with today's show is talk about some of the issues at stake in this election. Uh, you've already seen sky-high enthusiasm among voters, particularly on the progressive side. But there's still some people who say, you know what, elections don't matter, uh, and particularly among young people. And I was struck by, there's a Harvard poll that came out the other day that said 40% of uh, young people uh, are going to vote, which is good. Um, it's up from about 26% uh, in 2014, but that number is still way too low. And so what we're going to do today is talk about the issues that matter and are at stake in the ballot. And you're not just voting for a person, you're voting for a set of issues. So in the first half hour today, we have Austin Evers, the executive director of American Oversight, which is a wonderful watchdog organization here in Washington, D.C., that is uh, keeping this administration accountable uh, while the Republican Congress basically um, sits on its hands and does nothing. And hopefully that will change. And Austin really has been in the thick of so many of the battles that have happened over the last 21 months. And so uh, he's a good friend and um, and a great guest. And at 8 o'clock, we get uh, uh, my congressman, Ray's congressman, uh, Don Beyer, from the wonderful Commonwealth of Virginia, represents the 8th Congressional District, which is Northern Virginia. Uh, and he's been out stumping for candidates around the Commonwealth. And we've got some wonderful pickup opportunities and really a chance to get some uh, more women in Congress, which is uh, much needed. And so uh, Congressman Beyer will be here at 8 o'clock. And then at 8.30, we have another friend of the show, Rebecca Vallis, who is the vice president for uh, the Poverty to Prosperity Program at the Center for American Progress. And um, Rebecca will be here with me at 8.30 when we get the jobs numbers. We'll talk about what they mean. We'll talk about uh, some of the other domestic issues, particularly health care that's on the ballot uh, and, and what has happened really over the last 20 months and our chance to start reversing some of these things. And so um, that's the lineup for today. Um, so, uh, look, Election Day is on Tuesday. Um, uh, you know, I, you're going to be hearing from candidates. You're going to be hearing from celebrities. Uh, it's going to be impossible to turn on TV to get on social media without people telling you to vote. As it should be. As it should be. And as I've continually said to people, if over the last 21 months at any time you have gone out to march, if you've gone out to march for women's rights, you've gone out to march for gun safety, you've gone out to march uh, for uh, immigrants, uh, take that amount of time that you spent not only marching, going to the march, buying your poster board, making up your sign, spend that amount of time, double it, triple it. And go out and volunteer this weekend um, and help your favorite candidate, help your favorite cause. Um, you know, even in places where you might think, you know, um, you know, one candidate's going to win or another candidate's uh, definitely going to uh, lose. There are uh, local issues on the ballot. Um, there are ballot initiatives. And, and, and Rebecca and I are going to talk about some of those. Uh, so, Ray, you are doing your part on Election Day, right? Yes. Um, I am a precinct captain in Arlington which means that essentially I am perpetually hosting get out the vote efforts. I'm doing lots of voter registration or was it's over now. Right. Uh, Metro flyering, recruiting <laughs> volunteers, pounding the pavement, knocking on doors, all of that. So is your is your weekend completely full of GOTV? It is. 
Um, where I live, there's a lot of diversity. Um, and so there's a lot of Spanish speakers. Um, there's a lot of Ethiopian immigrants and things like that. And so a lot of what the precinct captain does in my neighborhood specifically is actually recruit other volunteers who are able to fluently converse with our neighbors. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, I, I, is this fun? <laughs> it is fun. It's it's fun when there's a lot of energy and people are excited and receptive. It's difficult when um, energy is down and people are passing by you and they literally say, I don't care. Right. Yeah. Look, you know, I look, I'm in I'm a, I'm a resident of Arlington County. And for those of you who are not from the D.C. area, which I suspect is most of you, uh, Arlington is kind of the, 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 the jurisdiction right outside of D.C. Uh, over the line in Virginia. It's the most a, bikeable it is the most bike. place in America. Although, God, we're seeing a lot of scooters around Arlington right now. I hate them. Can we talk about this a little yeah, bit we more? We need to talk this about means, the scooters. Yeah, we do. Yeah, I, I, I've been sort of, I, it's kind of not my demographic uh, but I'm sort of intrigued, but I'm not intrigued enough to do it without a helmet. Okay, so I am all for scooters because they're reducing the number of car rides people are taking, right. which is awesome. If you're going to take one of those motorized scooters instead of an Uber, I am all for it. But, yes, these people need helmets, and why do they ride them in the middle of the street yeah, it, like it's a motorcycle it is, or something? It's kind of an odd thing, um, it, and I, I know this because I spend a fair amount of time in – Seattle, where my wife lives. Um, in Seattle, um, they have this funny thing on bikes. I think bikes, you can actually, if there's not a bike lane, you could ride a bike uh, on a sidewalk, and but unless it's a motorized bike, and they've got like these line bikes, and I'm not shamelessly shilling, but they've got line bikes that are motorized, uh, sort of motorized. Uh, it's kind of pedal assisted. Uh, those you have to go on the street. I think the the scooters sort of kind of fall in between, and uh, you know, my God, if you're on the street with a motorized scooter without a helmet, uh, you know, that's so I guess the sidewalk is sort of the better place for you. Maybe not for the pedestrian, but it may be better for the scooter rider. But also it drives me insane how the app is built this way, too. Like you're meant to just park these motorized scooters wherever, pick them up <laughs> whenever. But like they're often just strewn in the most inconvenient places, <laughs> blocking any access with big strollers, which I have a kid, so I'm constantly pushing a stroller. It's a mess, Chris. No, it really is a mess. I, I will say this, and again, I you know I don't want to I, I um to stay on the focus. And, and Ray did mention ride sharing. Uh, Uber and Lyft. For those of you that can't get to the polls, Uber and Lyft are offering special deals. So uh, be sure to take up on that. Uh, also, if you can't get to the polls, um, or for whatever reason. Uh, you can vote early. You can still vote absentee in most places um, or call your local uh, party committee. Um, and there, there is um, always somebody who can give you a ride. And that's one of the things I love doing on Election Day. Uh, my wife and I are going to be actually canvassing uh, tomorrow down in uh, Culpeper, Virginia, which is you know about an hour from here. Um, we have a wonderful uh, Democratic female candidate, uh, Abigail Spanberger, who's got a fantastic shot of winning that race. And so we're going to be driving down there. Um, you know, I asked Ray whether it's fun to do this. And I'd say it is fun, again, like a year like this one, there's a lot of enthusiasm. And I genuinely enjoy the conversations with people. It's not to say you don't get some unpleasant conversations. It's rewarding, I would say. Yes, it is rewarding. You feel like th- that old expression in sports, you-, you leave everything out on the field. And if everyone gets out there, because we always say elections, are all about turnout. And a lot of the low propensity t- 
turnout voters are the ones who have the most at stake um, and need to be convinced of what these issues are. I mean, when I when I read these things about young people saying, you know what, uh, elections don't matter. Uh, these issues uh, aren't relevant to me. I think to myself, my God, if we mess up the healthcare system, if we don't solve climate change, you guys are screwed. So I, look, I, it's one of the things we're gonna be talking a lot about uh, today on the show. Um, and I would also say this, I'll make a shameless plug um, yes, I think everyone needs to get out there and canvas. Um, if I had my organizer friends in here, they would tell you the most effective touch you can make is a face-to-face conversation. And, and, and even if it's simply with a committed voter, but one of the things you do, they train you always to do is say, do you know where your polling place is? Do you know when you're going to vote? Are other members in your family planning to vote? The simple act of somebody affirming that they are going to vote, the simple act of affirming I'm going to vote before work, after work, lunchtime, makes a difference. Um, and Ray, I don't know if that's your experience as well. It does, absolutely. So um, some of the things that we always train our volunteers to do as well is exactly as you said, to reinforce um, everyone that they talk to what their vote voting plan looks like. Um, how they're going to get there, what day they're going to get there, what time, exactly like you just said. And a lot of people, they go, you know, I don't know. I was planning on voting, but I'm not sure yet. And then we go, well, make sure that you get that all in a row ahead of time because things come up on Election Day. So if you can vote early, vote early. Yeah. And for everyone who tells you, please stop bothering me. I already know what I'm going to do. You keep going back to that person because no one is going to be so annoyed by being asked to vote that they won't vote. And it with each successive uh, touch, uh, that makes a difference. And I would also make a, a, a shameless plug. Uh, in this age of technology, if you can't go out and canvas, you can't register voters or you can't leaflet, uh, you could do a lot of stuff remotely. There's remote phone banking uh, that you can either do from a um, central campaign office. Uh, you can now do it uh, from your own home where you sign up they basically give you the numbers. They give you the scripts. You do it on your cell phone. The other thing I've been doing a lot lately is uh, remote text banking as well. Um, and you can find out about all of these opportunities on Mobilize America. All you need to do, great website. Just go in, put in your zip code. It tells you opportunities near you. I basically, every time I have a free hour during the day, uh, I go on one of these sites. I just send text messages, hey, reminding people to vote. And so... It's a great thing. So, uh, again, for those of you listening, for those of you watching, uh, this is not Bill Press. Uh, This is Chris Luke subbing in for Bill on a Friday morning. Uh, Please consider following me on Twitter at ChrisLue44. And we usually like to ask the listeners a question for uh, social media. Um, And and one idea I had from last night, uh, Larry Sabadow, who is a a professor at, at UVA, uh, really kind of a great prognosticator about elections, tweeted out about a story about somebody in an iron lung um, who made it to vote. And and that was very empowering. And so uh, if all of you, if any of you on social media uh, want to tweet into BP show uh, a story of somebody who overcame some obstacle to come vote um, or why voting means to you, we'll read some of the great responses um, over the next hour and a half. And so... Um, Let me turn to some of the news of the day. Um, You know, there's a lot of people out on the campaign trail, and one of the ones that made the most news uh, was none other than Oprah Winfrey. Uh, And Oprah was down in Georgia 
with Stacey Abrams, who is running for uh, governor of Georgia. I will just simply say as an aside, I'm going to try hard not to play Donald Trump uh, clips today because my rule is if unless he's saying something truthful, I'm not going to play the clip. He I will say this, though. Yesterday, he took a jab at Stacey Abrams and said she is unqualified. Uh, Stacey Abrams went to Yale Law School. Uh, she has served in the uh, Georgia House for many, many years. By every definition, Stacey Abrams is more qualified to be the president of the United States than Donald Trump is. But let's just leave that aside. So she has, she's brought in a lot of star power lately. Uh, Oprah was down there. Um, and, and she really um, rallied people to how they can help take back our country and how the power is in their hands. And let's play that clip. We are not powerless. Every single one of us, every single one of us has the same power at the polls. And, and, and why that's an important message uh, is especially in this day and age when uh, the other side has a concerted effort to suppress the right to vote. Uh, I think it's important for people to understand this right to vote is so precious uh, and that it, this is not something that uh, all of us have enjoyed uh, for for uh, since the founding of this country, and Oprah talked about that as well. Anybody here who has an ancestor who didn't have the right to vote, and you are choosing not to vote wherever you are in this state, in this country, you are dishonoring your family. <laughs> I mean, I can't—look, I, I'm never going to try to one-up Oprah, but I can't give you a better reason for why you should vote about you dishonor your family by not exercising your right to vote. Now, I will say I thought this was kind of funny. I mean, so Oprah was down there, amazing crowds. Uh, a bunch of celebrities have been doing stuff for Stacey Abrams. Uh, will Ferrell was down there as well doing things. Uh, and, and Mike Pence was there. Uh, I'm not going to play the Pence clip because it's just— I. It, well, actually, so Pence was down there. Pence was sort of griping that, you know, um, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, yeah, I'm not Oprah. I'm not Will Ferrell, but I'm, uh, you know, I'm still the vice president. And it just seemed kind of lame. And he talked about what they've accomplished over the last couple of years. So let's play that clip. It's been two years of action. It's been two years of results. It's been two years of promises made and promises kept. And we're just getting started, Georgia. You know, I had to play that clip, notwithstanding my 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 my, my rule that I'm not playing f uh, fake news, fa false things. But I, it, that contrast is quite uh, stark. Uh, you know, I'm fairly sure even diehard Republicans would rather have gone to hear Oprah than Pence. It's Oprah. I mean, it's the, Oprah. It's universal appeal. But uh, no, go ahead, Brian. Yeah, talking to her point about. Um, getting to the polls and how we all have the same power at the polls. I mean, pick whatever issue is most important to you, right? For me, it's climate change. Mm -hmm. And the number one thing that you can do, even if you are a vegetarian who recycles everything, who doesn't use plastic straws, who only walks and bikes everywhere, takes public transportation, the best thing that you can do for climate change and to help reverse it, if we have a hope of it, is to vote people out who don't believe in climate change. All right, right. Now, you just teed up the, the other Pence clip. Uh, you know, uh, you and I are strong proponents of dealing with climate change. Uh, the vice president of the United States is not. Let's play that clip. We've unleashed American energy as never before, and we got America out of that disastrous Paris Climate Accord. 
So remember that when you all go to vote, that you've got an administration that considers fighting climate change uh, to, uh, to not to be a priority, which is just amazing. Um, let me let me do a couple of other things before we get to our guests. Um, a couple other stories in the news, uh, just to have the listeners be aware of. Um, uh, there, there's the, the front page of today's Washington Post has a story. We'll talk about this a little bit more with Austin uh, Evers about Ryan Zinke, the Secretary of the Interior, uh, who has been under. He's now sort of achieving Scott Pruitt-like status in terms of the number of investigations that he's under. And earlier the week, uh, the Inspector General, which is the internal watchdog, uh, agency watchdog, referred one of those investigations to the Justice Department, uh, which suggests that uh, Zinke really may be in some, uh, have some criminal liability here. And why that's significant is the Washington Post is reporting this morning that even the White House, even the president, who literally on an hourly basis is violating rules and norms, is now concerned that Ryan Zinke might have done something bad. So, I mean, that is like incredible when even even Donald Trump thinks you might be corrupt. So that's in the Washington Post if you have not seen it. Uh, another good story, important story in the Post is um, uh, from a good friend, uh, Lisa Ryan, uh, who's a reporter at the Post, who is uh, talking about the Trump cabinet fanning out across the country to do official events, not campaign events, official events uh, with endangered uh, House Republicans. Um, and what's interesting is while Trump is uh, criticizing government. He's talking about the deep state. Uh, his his cabinet agencies are going out there. They're cutting ribbons on federal projects. They are uh, handing out federal dollars to endangered Republicans. Again, this is a, a practice that other administrations have followed, uh, have, have, have done. In fact, we did it to some extent in the Obama administration. Uh, but there's a fairly stark contrast between the message from the top of the White House and what cabinet agencies are talking about uh, and some ethics experts uh, think that in the way that the cabinet of Donald Trump is being deployed, it might actually cross the ethics line. So that is in the Washington Post as well. Uh, a couple other stories of note. Uh, again, Washington Post. Uh, Larry Kudlow, the uh, White House um, economic advisor, um, doesn't think we should have a minimum wage. And I'm going to talk about this a little bit more with Rebecca um, he, he said the, the federal minimum wage is a terrible idea. And just, you know, I know a little bit about this because I was the deputy secretary of labor. Um, and the minimum wage, federal minimum wage, has been around since 1938. And um, Larry Kudlow thinks it's a terrible idea. And what's important, and I, I think people don't really quite understand this, the minimum wage is $7.25, um, $7.25 an hour. Um, and, and that's and in 21 states right now in the United States, the federal minimum wage is also the state minimum wage. And most of those states are in the South, are in the West. And so what Kudlow is essentially saying is, you know what, it's OK to get rid of the federal minimum wage. It's OK for states to pay people less than seven dollars and twenty five cents and try living on seven twenty five. And so it gives you a sense about uh, the cruelty of the policies that this administration uh, is proposing as it results uh, as it relates to um, working class people, um, and then finally um, in the New York Times this morning, um, there's a story by Jonathan Martin said Trump's nationalism is a breaking point for some suburban voters risking GOP coalition. And so while Trump is continuing to ramp up the rhetoric 
uh, on immigration cruelly, I would say. And we'll talk a little bit more about this with Congressman Beyer. Um, he's alienating a lot of uh, more educated, uh, wealthier um, um, uh, Republican suburbanites uh, who have traditionally voted Republican um, and now we're just kind of leaving the party in droves. And this is, you know, the, the the challenge that Republicans face in the midterms, because, you know, while Trump is trying very hard to hold on to some Senate seats in red states, he's alienating a lot of the voters he needs to hold on to the House. And um, um, and Republicans are sort of up in arms. And it has sort of broader implications for a potential future governing coalition uh, of Democrats. And so that's what we have uh, on tap for today. This is uh, Chris Liu. As I said, I am uh, subbing in for Bill today um, on the Bill Press Show, uh, a senior fellow at the University of Miller Center. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at ChrisLiu44. So a lot to cover on a very fun show. Um, I will say, and one of the things we've been talking about with Ray is the importance of coming out to vote. Now, I went out and voted early. You did not vote early? I like to vote on election day, and I'm also a poll greeter, so I'm there anyway. Um, I'll be handing out sample Democratic ballots and talking to voters and engaging with them even before they head in. Um, so I vote on election day. So I will. OK, now I, here's one thing I'm going to do, and I and I always do this. Even if I'm greeted at the poll by somebody from the other party, I always thank them for being there. Me too. Always. Uh, and, and Because it is not. It is not easy getting out there in the dark and, you know, it often rains and, you know, and I, I want regardless of party. And I mean this honestly, I want people to come out and and, and participate and and participating is not just voting. It's also being I do part too, of the but process. I would also like to say that I want more Democrats to come out. Well, and OK. Participate. All right. Well, so, <laughs> to some degree, yes. To some degree, no. Is there when you when you greet people, do you is there also the like I, whenever I'm out there doing it? I, I go and shake hands with the Republican. We chat and assuming they're nice, we'll like, you know, share stories and, you know. Yeah, look, it's always very nice at the polls at where I live. And so we're lucky to have that. Um, but also Arlington is so blue. Yeah. The Arlington Dems have a saying that you're a Democrat unless proven otherwise. <laughs> so um, I can't say that my job as a precinct leader is that hard. It's really just convincing people that already have the same values to get out there and vote. Yeah, no, and I agree. And, and I, I will tell you, as somebody who takes a sample ballot, um, it, it's it's important because it helps you focus on the local candidates and, the, and that there are always bond issues that are important as well. You know, we want to make sure, at least in Arlington County, that we've got, you know, good schools, good parks and things like that. So they need to be financed. And so... Um, this will be a painful repetition over the next hour and a half. We're going to be talking about voting, voting, voting. Uh, and so I will feel like I have done my part uh, in order to um, to get people out there. So uh, this is Chris Liu subbing in for Bill Press. And we will be back in a couple of minutes with our first guest. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Good morning, everyone. This is Chris Liu uh, subbing in for Bill Press on Friday morning. Uh, uh, we've got some wonderful guests who are going to be here in a moment. Um, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at ChrisLiu44. Please follow the show at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. Uh, in the last half hour, we asked uh, some of our listeners to tell us uh, inspirational stories about voting or why voting matters, and we'd say we'd read some of them. So, Ray, we have a couple? 
Absolutely. So um, here we have Richard weighing in, and he says, I am staging location director for Pennsylvania District 13. To borrow a phrase, we are fired up and ready to go. <laughs> I've Final heard that somewhere. Final four starts tomorrow. I think I've heard that before. I've heard that one. We also have a poll that just went up, um, so it's young, but we're getting some votes already. What's your number one issue heading into Election Day? Is it climate change, health care, immigration, or other? 21% so far say climate change, 66% health care, 0% immigration. We have some comments there. Um, Nathan says that his number one issue is sanity. <laughs> <laughs> and you can have your voice heard. Tweet us at BP Show. Take the poll. Let us know. Great. Thank you, Ray. Well, we are joined in studio by Austin Evers, a, a good friend. Uh, Austin is the executive director of American Oversight. Austin, thanks for being back. Thanks for having me. Uh, you can follow Austin on Twitter at A-R-Evers, A-R-E-V-E-R-S, or you can follow his organization at We Are Oversight. Now, I just asked Austin if he had voted yet. He's a D.C. resident. Austin said he had not, but he has a reason why he has not. I do. Um, in 2016, I started what I hope to be a lifetime tradition of voting with my son. He was uh, just about one at the time, and so we went to the polls, and we're going to do it again on Tuesday. I think getting in line and being a you know, a three-year-old citizen is a is a good tradition. Does he does he even know he does he even know what voting is at three? Probably not. Um, he probably sees uh, you know, uh, the stars of the political show on uh, <laughs> over my shoulder as I'm on my iPad. So he knows the politicians, but maybe not what's at stake. So here's the something I don't know, and Ray, you may know this. Like I, okay, I, when I went to go early vote, um, there was a, a college kid voting for the first time. His mom took a photo of him voting. Are are we, are we allowed to take photos of people in bowling place? Yeah. So it varies state by state, but in Virginia, I believe that you're still allowed to. So can Austin, can you selfie yourself taking it? We'll find out. I, I took a photo of my son with the I voted sticker, yeah. which might be voter fraud. <laughs> uh, but I probably won't do a selfie in the voting booth. Yeah, we don't, we don't need the oversight guy getting uh, his own oversight. So Austin, um, your organization really has been one of the leading groups in helping to hold this administration accountable. Why don't you, give me a sense of what has been on the top of your list the last couple of months. Sure. We launched in 2017 because we predicted accurately that the leadership in Congress was going to abdicate its oversight role, that checks and balances would just take a backseat to being stooges for Donald Trump. And so for the last couple of years, we have been using transparency litigation to expose evidence of corruption, whether it's Ryan Zinke, whether it's Scott Pruitt, whether it's Wilbur Ross. Um, we've been all over the place because there's so much accountability work to do. And now what we're doing is we're focusing on what could happen in January 2019 if Congress gets back into the oversight game. We see it as a major opportunity for accountability, a place where the evidence we extract can live on, maybe uh, be used as evidence at hearings, and, you know, frankly, where uh, Congress can just do its job. Well, let's actually talk about a couple of these ones. I mean, today's Washington Post has a story about Ryan Zinke and how even the White House, which is not known for their uh, faithfulness to ethics is now concerned that he may have crossed the line. And and I mean, this is actually kind of incredible for a criminal. I mean, at least it, it's the story. It says a criminal referral to the Justice Department. Yeah, this is um this is one of several uh, issues that's been uh, building against Zinke. It's an allegation that he and his wife uh, misused his his public office. Uh, when dealing with the CEO of Halliburton uh, related to a land deal in Montana where they own land or their charity they run owns land um, and Halliburton was interested. Uh, but it, you know, it goes along with uh, his efforts to get his wife um, appointed as a volunteer employee at Interior so he could <laughs> uh, cover her travel uh, on, on taxpayer dime. 
um, and reassigning critics of his at the Interior Department. There's a whole litany. And I think a referral from the Inspector General to the Department of Justice is really important. It speaks to the severity of the issue. But I also think it's important for everybody to think about this. The criminal law is a terrible baseline for what we want in our public servants. You should be far away from that. And I think, Chris, you can speak to this. Yeah. In the Obama administration, the, the, the marching orders were do it right. Stay yeah. away from those lines. And, uh, you know, for the most part, people did. And I think it, that investment early on in ethics paid off. Well, it's an important point. I mean, ultimately, the tone gets set from the top. And I feel like I've been saying until I'm blue in the face that if I had done even one of these things that Zinke Pruitt had done, I would have been fired on the spot. But I think your point is an important one. I mean, this, some people might say oversight is about partisan hits. It's not. It's about ensuring that uh, public resources, uh, official resources are used to serve the people. I, I totally agree. And I think oversight might be a term that doesn't make sense to everybody. It's kind of a beltway term. What I think about is checks and balances, which we all learn about in like third grade. It's about having our system of government uh, check itself to make sure that one branch doesn't run out of control. And I think we've been seeing that for the last two years. Um, Everyone thinks about 2019 and the potential for oversight as a question about tax returns and impeachment. But I actually think that there's going to be a lot of focus on more bread and butter oversight or checks and balances issues to ensure that ethics laws are followed, ensure that your taxpayer dollars are, are spent wisely, uh, and to get answers on some of the, the issues that the administration has just been completely opaque about, whether it's family separation or it's mucking about with the 2020 census. Yeah, let's talk about the census. Actually, before we get to the census, I, I think it's an, it, the important point is this. Um, any one of these investigations involving Pruitt or Zinke would have triggered a whole series of action on Capitol Hill. Only really with regard to Pruitt at the 11th hour did House Oversight start doing anything. And I'm not aware that. I mean, we'll ask actually Don Byer when he comes in, uh, since I think he's on the Natural Resources Committee. I'm not aware that. House Republicans are doing anything regarding Zinke. I have not seen anything on Zinke, um, although you never know what the tipping point would be. A criminal referral might be something they can't ignore, but you never know. Uh, Syncovants have made bad watchdogs so far, so I'm not <laughs> sure they're going to get in the business in the next couple of months. Um, but you know, at the bottom line, if he is if he's been abusing his public office for private gain, that is the epitome of what uh, what the American people should be upset about. They should want someone in there who's focused on their job, protecting public lands, ensuring that gas licenses are, are allocated fairly and uh, with with an eye towards climate change um, and to ensure that, uh, you know, uh, uh, casino deals in Connecticut are are uh, passed through fairly without regard to political bias, which is another one of the investigations. And, and that's an important thing. You know, when Donald Trump talked about draining the swamp, I mean, he was talking directly about, you know, this casino issue in Connecticut where essentially Zinke overruled the career staff at Interior because he was lobbied by the industry. Another hotel owner. Another hotel owner. Um, this is Chris Liu. I am subbing in for a Bill Press on Friday morning. Uh, we're joined by Austin Evers, the executive director at American Oversight. So, Austin, you had mentioned the 2020 census. I mean, this is another one where, again, I spent time when I was at the White House um, helping to work with Gary Locke on the 2010 census. Um, this is just kind of something that every uh, administration does. It kind of flies under the radar, except for this year. It's a bit of math that undergirds all of our civil rights and all of our opportunities to, to um, participate as American citizens. 
the right to be counted. It's in the Constitution. And traditionally, the goal behind the census is to count everybody fairly to get an accurate number. What we saw at the Census Department or the, the Commerce Department this year and last year was the uh, addition of a question about your citizenship. And there are real concerns about the insidious impact that that question could have on people's willingness to respond to the question. American Oversight has brought some litigation on behalf of the NAACP to go after the records uh, about how that question came to pass. Because one of the most glaring issues, if it weren't you know, for the merits themselves, was that Wilbur Ross lied about mm. where the question came from. He said it came from the DOJ. It actually, email show, came from a request from Wilbur Ross to the DOJ to request it. So uh, we're going to get those records out. And um, hopefully, regardless of who's in control of Congress next year, um, they'll take up the evidence as well and get to the bottom of this. You could not imagine a more problematic civil rights violation than undercounting the people in this country. Yeah, and, and, and this story, again, because there's so much happening that it's hard to focus on those. There's also a lying to Congress issue here as well. Um, at a House appropriations hearing, um, Ross is asked directly by Congresswoman Grace Meng, uh, did you have contact with the White House about this? He says no. Uh, actually, the documents that have come out from the New York Attorney General's um, office, which is leading one of the lawsuits, says he actually had a conversation uh, with, in fact, with Steve Bannon about this, or Steve Bannon told him, hey, go talk to Chris Kobach about this. And so um, that's an important issue that in any other administration would be looked at. But to your point about this is good government, I think people forget that having an accurate census ensures that federal dollars are allocated to the places that they should go to. Um, and so if you don't actually know where people are, those areas aren't going to get the money that they deserve. That's absolutely right. And it is, I think, difficult for anyone to predict with a partisan lens how that impact would uh, affect a very uh, you know particular state or community. What we do know is that the best practice is to count everybody. Heck, it's in the Constitution. Yeah. You have to do it. So uh, we're very concerned about um, the meddling with it, and we're going to get to the bottom of it, and we hope that Congress takes it up next year. And again, this is not a, a liberal or conservative idea, and I think people forget this. I mean, people think, well, you know, this will from a partisan lens, will disadvantage California. Well, it's probably going to disadvantage Texas, Arizona as well. Um, Alabama is apparently on the on the cusp of losing a uh, congressional seat. Alabama has a potentially a large number of undocumented immigrants there as well. So if they're undercounted. So this cuts, this is just about good government. And I think the other people think people forget, and I weirdly know this from 2010, is that when people don't return their census forms, what we end up doing is we send people out to knock on their door and ask them to fill out the form. That actually costs more money. Um, so this is a question that not only leads to bad government services, but in the end costs government much, much more. And in this case could lead to a, someone working for the government knocking on your door and asking if you're a citizen. Right. And that's the real problem. That's the real problem as well. Um, another thing I know you all are involved in is the FBI headquarters fight. Why don't you tell the listeners about that one? This one's a doozy. Um, so for <laughs> They're all doozies. I know. But for many years, uh, the FBI has been seeking to relocate. It's uh, the J. Edgar Hoover building is on the mall. It's this large, old, bit of a monstrosity building, and it's out of date. And for many years, they were working on uh, moving <clears throat> out of the district and uh, essentially selling their current property uh, to a private developer to build something new. Um, this year, the... Uh, uh, the GSA inspector general issued a report about uh, that project and in a footnote indicated that uh, the, de the decision 
in 2017 to abandon the relocation program, to delay all of this work, may have been driven by conversations with the White House and Donald Trump himself. And why could that, why would, why would he take interest in, in that issue? Um, perhaps because the FBI headquarters is right down the street from his hotel and construction would lead to congestion and a new private development might include another hotel. It is the epitome of a conflict of interest and the way that Donald Trump seems to view public service as his own private piggy bank. And so what we have done is we filed a number of FOIA requests. These are uh, transparency uh, requests with the FBI, the DOJ, and the Office of Management and Budget. We are going to get to the bottom of this. We are going to find out what emails exist, what were, pe- what were people saying, was dissent overruled, what's the cost of this delay? It is a tangible example of how taxpayer dollars are, it can be wasted because this president is willing to just throw ethics out the window. Yeah, and look, I mean, let's just stipulate this this whole thing could be on the level. I mean, I know that there are and I, I know this because when I was the deputy secretary of labor, we were working on getting ourselves a new building. And there's a lot of issues about uh, questions about whether you're better off staying and rebuilding in a place or moving to another location. But this all comes about because you have a president who owns a hotel down the street from the White House. That that fact itself should never have happened in the first. That conflict of interest has now raised all of these questions. Yep. The uh, the agency that is currently overseeing the non-relocation or the delayed relocation of the FBI headquarters is also the agency that blessed Donald Trump's continued ownership stake in the Trump Hotel, despite being an elected official, which is at odds with the text of the lease. And the, the, to your point, though, um, you you dealt with the idea of relocation at an agency and questions about cost benefit and, and what makes sense. I'm going to bet that President Obama didn't call you to his office and say, you know, I have a particular interest in this one building. It's below the level of the president. And uh, frankly, he's not an expert in it. This is a case where you want to defer to the cost benefit analysis of the professionals, the civil service, the engineers, uh, the GSA, OMB, all these people you work with Congress for appropriations. This was years in the making. And it seems that maybe the best case scenario is that the president was fickle and uh, overturned many, many years of work that will cost us lots of money. And the worst case scenario is that he did it because he didn't want to lose money himself. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's an important point, Austin, because when I um, helped spearhead our potential move uh, at the Department of Labor, I I gave a heads up to my boss, Tom Perez, but even the Secretary of Labor was not actively involved in this. There is an entire process that's run by career civil servants that both does the cost-benefit analysis and then maps out here are other possible locations. And, and and I know full well the locations that we were thinking about for a new building, but I didn't put my thumb on the scale to say, hey, I want to hear or want there, because that's not my job. And I think people don't necessarily understand. If you come to Washington, D.C., you see all these government buildings on fairly prime locations like Pennsylvania Avenue, where the FBI building is. The truth is that 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 big parcel that the FBI has is not the highest and best use of that space. The highest and best use space is some kind of commercial development, potentially a hotel, potentially retail. And again, that sits conveniently right across the street from the Trump Hotel. It would pose major competition to that hotel. And, and what is really stunning, and just to bring this back around, is that these questions emerged from an independent watchdog, the inspector general, and Congress did nothing. Right. There are, there are no hearings. There's no testimony. There are no document requests. Uh, the public deserves to know uh, what happened here. Congress should want to know what happened here. Right. And instead, they're doing nothing. 
So add this to the long list of pent-up <laughs> oversight energy that exists on the Hill right now. There are people, there are members, there are staffers, there are interns who just want to start digging through the record and have an evidence-based conversation about what's really been going on. Set aside what could be coming down the pike for the next two years. Well, all right, let's just do one more before we talk more broadly about oversight. I know you all filed a Freedom of Information Act request on the birthright citizenship issue. Talk about that one. Well, um, for those you, Austin just rolled his eyes for, the, for those of you that didn't see that. So uh, for the um, it doesn't take a constitutional scholar to read the 14th Amendment um, and to see that uh, it says quite clearly on its face that if you're born here, you're a citizen. But uh, boiled down to that. Uh, we're very interested to see why the president suddenly thinks that he can issue an executive order that uh, would trump the Constitution. Uh, we're also interested to see why he thinks that because there is a published DOJ Office of Legal Counsel opinion. That's essentially the law of the executive branch that says if Congress passed such a law out outlawing birthright citizenship, it would be unconstitutional on its face. So we want to get behind that. The president seems to be trying to make an election issue out of this. We don't know if he's going to follow through with it. But what we do know is that work has been done on this issue. The Constitution has been around for a while. <laughs> and we want to see... Uh, you know, what efforts there are to essentially amend it through fiat. And we're going to get to the bottom of that one, too. Um, there's, uh, there's a lot to do next year. Uh, this is Chris Liu, uh, guest hosting for Bill Press on Friday morning. Our guest this morning uh, right now is Austin Evers, the executive director at American Oversight. You can follow me on Twitter at ChrisLiu44. You can follow Austin at AR Evers. Uh, you can also follow his organization at We Are Oversight. So, Austin, let's turn to that. Uh, again, I, I'm always careful not to jinx anything, but uh, if, if the prognosticators are correct and there is a Democratic House, um, what does that do for the work of your organization? Um, and what would be your advice? And we're going to have Congressman Byer in, in here in a second. What would you be your advice to them on how they should focus oversight efforts? Uh, both great questions. Um, so from our perspective as an out, outside watchdog, we view... Congress doing its job as an exciting uh, opportunity to have the work that we do find another venue uh, for accountability. So if we find evidence of uh, misconduct with Ryan Zinke, which we are expecting that we're going to, <laughs> there seems to be a lot. Um, we want to not only tell the public about that evidence on our Twitter feed and in the press, but we also want people in Congress who have jurisdiction to take that up and conduct further investigations. Congress has additional tools at its disposal. Among them, subpoena power, subpoenas for documents and subpoenas for testimony. Um, they also have the appropriations power, they can, the power of the purse, so they can pressure agencies to disclose things uh, uh, through that as well. My advice to a new Congress, and it's the same advice to this Congress, is sure, there are the top line front page issues that everyone wants to talk about. <clears throat> it's all Donald Trump all the time. But Congress has many committees lots of jurisdiction. And what I hope is that everyone with a jurisdiction, whether it's the Natural Resources Committee or the Energy and Commerce Committee or the Oversight Committee or the Armed Services Committee, there's, there, are, there are many of them, that they all dig in on the issues that really matter. Um, even if you just care about taxpayer dollars, see how they're spent. Um, have people making decisions come up and tell you why they made them. Do their emails match their talking points? If not, why not? If they're not telling you answers, make obstruction a big issue. Um, there's not a lot of time between January 2019 and January 2021 to do a lot of investigations, given how many that we need to do. And so what I hope that Congress does is uh, 
really spreads itself out. I hope that you know it's not just the the front page grabbing ones. I hope this they do the work of oversight that's been missing. The issue of time that you mentioned is an important one, and I think maybe people don't understand. You can get a lot of information. You can't get whatever Congress can get, and they can certainly do it a lot faster than you can do it. I mean, filing FOIA requests is a pretty painstaking, drawn-out process. It's slow, but I'd also say that a congressional subpoena is not a magic wand. And the way I look at it is this. is If you're the administration uh, and you see Congress coming with subpoenas and the right to hold hearings, uh, there are holes in their oversight um, net before they, you know, that you can try to slip through, that you can exploit, you can delay. The FOIA process from the outside overlaid on top of that congressional oversight net fills a lot of those holes. It makes the mesh finer, harder to slip through. So what I'm looking forward to doing is using outside litigation to force documents to come out that Congress might otherwise have trouble getting, and then using what Congress gets, using the testimony that they get to empower our litigation. It's going to be a feedback loop of oversight. Uh, you know, it, 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 again, all all important points. I mean, I look, I mean, there has been this very powerful group of people on the outside, not only speaking out about the issues of the day, but doing this transparency. I've often said, look, I, I would love nothing more um, for there to be a, a, a Congress that's actually fulfilling its role as a co-equal branch and put all of us out of business. Now, you're never going to be out of business because I, I think you said the finer mesh is an important thing. But I've told people, like, I'm out there shooting my mouth off on Twitter. If we take back Congress, I'm just going to be quiet for a while because, like, I've got I've done my work. I've got nothing to say for a while. I, I have a slightly different view of that, but, it, but it's similar. <laughs> I trust uh, the members of Congress and their staff who want to do oversight to do it well. Um, I think there's a lot of, uh, of folks who want to um, sort of uh, armchair quarterback investigations. Um, that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to support it. We're trying to get our own questions answered as well. Um, but the but Elijah Cummings from Maryland is an extraordinary investigator. His staff is fantastic, and he's got colleagues on natural resources. Uh, Representative Grijalva is you know rearing to go. He wants to conduct investigations, and so I think your point is well taken. If uh, Congress changes hands and it gets back into the oversight game. I think it's going to be very exciting and interesting to watch as they get to work, just pulling the levers of, yeah. of constitutional power that we have just they, they've been lying dormant for almost two years. And, and for those of you that are interested, there's a great piece in the Post from last week from Henry Waxman, my uh, well, a interview with Henry Waxman, my former boss on the House Oversight Committee, talking about sensible ways that House should do investigations. It's really along the lines of what Austin is talking about. Yeah. Um, Representative Waxman is actually a, is a wonderful model. And if you look back at 2007 when he took the gavel, it, it actually is really instructive that we don't we shouldn't all expect that a new Congress would go crazy. I think the, the oversight of the recent years has been petulant. But oversight uh, conducted by Waxman was fact-based and substantive. He investigated Hurricane Katrina, yeah. Iraq <clears throat> contracting. And heck, he looked back, he wrote a great book as well about his experience, and he looked back into 2003 and complimented his Republican counterpart, Tom Davis, for also being willing to conduct good faith oversight. What we have seen recently is not normal. Yeah, I mean, I, I've i gotten to know Tom Davis over the years as well, and, and Congressman Davis, former Congressman Davis, is always very complimentary of the work that they did together. A lot of it was not the front page headline stuff, but it really fundamentally makes government work most effectively, and it's really ensuring that taxpayers' dollars are used the way they're supposed to be used. If a public servant believes that his or her work will be checked, that his emails will become public, that he'll be or that she'll be forced to answer questions, that public servant will take different actions today, knowing that the oversight could come. 
you, knowing that there will be accountability matters to how people carry well, out their jobs. Well, I, I mean, Austin, you you served, I served. We both knew in the back of our heads, you know, that the emails we were sending out, the documents we were, those could all see the light of day. And, and it wasn't, that's why we did, I mean, we obviously did the work the way we did because that was what our boss expected of us. But like that, 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 that the, the, the spotlight is important it is to very keep important. people honest. Um, it is very important. One thing that, uh, you know, I would unfortunately predict, I think, if um, if the elections go that way, is that some of these folks might leave government before oversight yeah. can happen. Betsy DeVos might not want to stick around. She couldn't handle a confirmation hearing that was friendly. Oversight might not be her friend. Thank you to Austin uh, Evers. Uh, please follow him on We Are Oversight. Uh, this is Chris Luce subbing in for Bill Press on a Friday morning. Uh, we will be back in a minute. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show. And on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. On your radio, on TV, and online. This is The Bill Press Show. Welcome to The Bill Press Show. This is Chris Liu, guest hosting for Bill on Friday morning. You can follow me on Twitter at ChrisLiu44. You can follow the show uh, on Twitter at BP Show. Uh, subscribe to the show on YouTube uh, at The Bill Press Show. Uh, we are so honored to have uh, Congressman Don Beyer. Uh, I think he's the best congressman. He's my congressman. He's raised congressman. <laughs> He represents the 8th Congressional District of Virginia. Congressman, thank you for being here. Chris, I, I love being invited, and it's, it's fun to think all week about being on your show. Uh, well, you're very kind. So we've been talking about voting. That's obviously on everyone's mind. Um, you said you had a, a funny story or a good story about well, voting. Well, the first thing I want to say is thank Ray for being a precinct captain. <laughs> you know, I've been doing this a long time, and it's the most important job in politics, uh, especially in a general election where it's all about turnout. And the precinct captain's work isn't just handing sample ballots to the people on an election day. It's all the work that goes on in the months before where you're identifying voters' yeah. preferences and needs, and it's really a big deal. And, Ray, please tell me offline because we're going around with coffee and donuts all day <laughs> to, to hit the precinct folks. So Yeah, I will talk to you right after your second. Okay, great. And uh, one quick story. When I first ran for lieutenant governor in 1989, um, I, I heard a story a couple days after the election from – my dear friend Lillian Spiro, who was a generation or two older than mm -hmm. I, and her husband Abe was scheduled for a heart procedure on the Monday before the election. And he was so worried that he was going to die in the procedure <laughs> that he postponed it a week so that he could vote. That's a Which great story. I thought story. was really wonderful. That's a fantastic story. And look, if that person could come out and vote, then there's no excuse for anyone else not voting. So, Congressman, I, you've won more elections than you have lost. Uh, so you have an inside perspective. What happens in this final, I guess, right, 96 hours now? If you're a candidate, if you're a campaign, what's going through? And why do all of these volunteers make a difference? Well, if you're a candidate, you're probably counting the minutes <laughs> until it's over. Um, it, it makes an enormous difference because you have to run through the tape. 
my old friend Paul Goldman, who's one of the mm-hmm. uh, savants in Virginia politics, pointed out that the high information voters, who tend to be people who listen to the Bill Press show, right. hosted by Chris Liu, uh, have, <laughs> have made up their mind a year ago. And the medium information in the last couple of months and the low information decide on Sunday night or sometimes even walking into the poll booth. So the effort that's put in in the last four or five days is going to reach the voters who actually are going be the ones who decide the election. My first election, again, not, not to – I don't want to focus on myself at all, but um, I was running against a woman who was way ahead of me and had uh, – and she was so far ahead of me that she stopped campaigning the last three weeks and canceled her TV ads and stayed home. <laughs> and I <clears throat> bought her TV ad time and we're out there campaigning like crazy. And we overcame literally a 20-point deficit in the last three weeks because we were working and she wasn't. So, again, you, you just raised the money issue. Uh, I don't know about you. My, my inbox is being flooded with emails from everyone I've given money to asking for more money. For those who are skeptical, who might be listening, as to what you could do with money at the end, what does that extra $100, $50 do, do at the end of a campaign? It, it, it At least on the Democratic side, yeah. it, it helps balance the huge infusion of money that's coming in on the Republican side. We've certainly seen them ratchet up across the country, uh, the, the message of fear. We understand that's the centerpiece of Donald Trump's appeal, is make people very afraid. And now, according to him, we have all these Middle Easterners with AK-47s about to flood the, the Mexican border. Uh, crazy, crazy stuff. So you have to be able to, to rebut it. Again, one of the old political aphorisms is that an, an attack unanswered is an attack agreed to. Yeah. So if someone comes after you and says, you know, you, you, you just stop beating your wife, uh, you have to be able to go out and say, no, no, that, that's not true. Uh, and, and you, you need the, the, some money on television, not so much to attack the other guy, but to defend yourself. And then also, uh, you know, we, we have hundreds, of maybe millions of volunteers that are knocking on doors. Um, but there are all the kids that don't make very much money that are the paid staff who are literally working seven days a week <laughs> till midnight every night, and we, we need enough money to pay them. I, I always tell people, look, if you don't want a canvas, you don't want a phone bank, then find out where the local campaign office is. Send a pizza or two over there and help feed these kids who are busting their butts trying to get this done. And, um, and they all look exhausted right they now. They all look the exhausted, yeah. and they're really running on fumes those last couple of days. Um, I want to talk about the president's fear-mongering in a second. Uh, but I do want to sort of stay on this uh, election f- uh, for another minute. Um, Virginia is a pretty exciting place. We've got some fantastic women candidates who I had the pleasure of meeting three of the four of them at an event you did at your house. Tell tell the listeners about who these people are and why you're so excited about them. Well, I'm really excited. First of all, there, there are seven Republicans in the House in Virginia right now. Uh, we have seven Democrats against them. Six of them are women. And, and they're all really terrific. The, the top four that have all made, you know, Charlie Cook's right. um, t- toss-up <clears throat> list um, are Jennifer Wexton, who is a, was a prosecutor and now is a state senator out in Loudoun County. She's running against Barbara Comstock, who, as they point out, has a 98.7% voting <laughs> record with Donald Trump and is the number three recipient of NRA money with an A-plus NRA rating. She likes to talk moderate. Her voting record's not no, that moderate. Uh, the, the Washington Post endorsement of Jennifer Wexton really called out – Barbara's fake moderation yeah. and, and pointed out for what it is. And so we have a great chance of picking that up. Uh, Abigail Spanberger, who got national attention when uh, the Trump administration inadvertently, <laughs> allegedly, <laughs> released inadvertently, right. her, her, her security clearance form. I kid her about reading it in bed every night. But she's just a terrific 
um, former CIA operative and business person and mother, and she's taken on David Bratt. And that's a one-point race right now. Uh, again, Trump won it relatively easily, I think by 15 points. Yeah. But Abiola's <laughs> made it a great race. In Virginia Beach, Norfolk, uh, we have a, a, a young woman who was a Naval Academy graduate, Elaine a Luria, surface yeah. ship commander, Elaine Luria, yeah, running against Scott Taylor. He's the one who got national attention <laughs> for having six of his campaign staff go out and do dead people and Democrats, all that, signing fake petitions to put a third-party candidate on the ballot. Uh, so th- they've helped us a lot. And then the fourth one is Leslie Coburn, who's a terrific, um, very uh, beautifully educated journalist who worked for 60 Minutes and Nightline, uh, running in the Virginia's 5th District, which is sort of Charlottesville and Danville, and running against a, a first-time candidate who is a distiller who, got again, got national attention for his preoccupation with uh, Bigfoot erotica. <laughs> and uh, amazingly, if you go to his website right now, there's a there's a seven-minute defense, first person of his Bigfoot uh, preoccupation. Uh, <laughs> so. uh, things that we never thought we'd be talking about. The funny thing about Leslie is until the event at your house, I didn't realize what her family connection was either. If any of you know, um, her daughter is Olivia Wilde, the actress. Uh, her son-in-law is Jason Sudeikis, uh, the actor, too. I mean, it's and she's very low-key about it, but that's yeah. kind of big celebrities on her side. And she didn't bring them into campaign till the very end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so it's an exciting time. Um, uh, how are you feeling about things? Are you? Are, I mean, you, like, as we said, you've won elections, you've lost elections. Yeah, I, I feel really good uh, after 2016. I think we're all humble, exactly, and, and we don't really trust the polls and, and the like. But if you look at at the basics, we have tremendous candidates. Uh, Chris, you probably know this, that we are contesting 433 out of 435 House seats. That's the most any party's ever done in the history of our country. The only two we're missing, one was in California because we lost a jungle primary, and the other is a seat in Indiana. And we have great candidates. We have right now 93 that are competitive. We only need 23 to wait in the House. We've done fine on the money equally. And we have the only... Maybe the only good thing that's come out of Donald Trump's election is this incredible resurgence of civic energy. All of our Democratic committees have doubled and tripled in size. We almost have too many volunteers, if you can have that. Uh, so I feel really good about, about the input, and then we'll see what the output is on Tuesday. Yeah, you know, and I and I said this earlier on the show, that it, for anyone listening, if you have gone out and marched at any time over the last 21 months for women's rights, gun safety, for immigrant rights— Whatever time you spent marching and putting together your poster board and, like, fuming afterwards, spend that exact same amount of time doing GOTV this weekend. You can go Canvas. You can do phone banking. They've got remote text banking. Uh, Bring a casserole over to a campaign headquarter. (laughs) Be like Ray and be a priest and captain. There's a hundred ways uh, to be helpful. So. And it's fun. It it actually is fun. I mean, it's – look, as somebody like me who tracks my steps – religiously. Um, you'll get a lot of steps walking around, but it's fun <laughs> to talk to your neighbors about yeah. the issues that matter. And, and you see, you can drive down the same street you know, all your life, and you will understand it in a different way when you actually walk up and knock on a door, yeah. and they open the door and talk to you. And you see how people live and what they care about. Yeah. So um, when we started the segment, we played a couple of clips from Vice President Biden uh, about what matters in this election. And I think you've seen this really dangerous ratcheting up of rhetoric. Um, by this administration. Um, you know, we, we saw this last year. Uh, we saw it to some extent we saw this last year in the closing days of the Virginia governor's race. I mean, what do you make of this? And and are, are you concerned that this will penetrate? 
I, I am concerned, but more than anything right now, I'm just embarrassed uh, for, for my country and, and very saddened. It, 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 uh, I, I don't like to use hyperbole or to overstate things, but it really is reminiscent of Germany in the 1930s where there's this demonization of the other. Uh, and you know, Trump has been doing this for a long time, but he, he's just getting more and more outrageous. Uh, the lies just explode. And this notion that we are in somehow incredible danger because some you know down to thirty five hundred women and children have fled poverty in order to seek asylum legally at they're the US walking border. and they're a thousand miles away they're walking and they're hungry I'm not sure there's <laughs> much of a threat to us at the moment no, none at all but somehow he's trying to make people you know, in in our heartland feel terrified by it and uh, and and there are consequences we just look at the, the hate crimes of the last weekend they weren't hate crimes from people from Iran or Syria. Or, or, or Latinas, they were white supremacists. And uh, it's it's terrible what he has legitimized. Yeah. Uh, speaking of white supremacists, we didn't talk about the uh, the Virginia Senate election yet either. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> uh, well, let's just say let's just say Tim Kaine is our, our favorite. Uh, well, one of our two favorite senators as well. And, uh, and but that's very encouraging <laughs> that the this outreach to hatred, to fear of the other, to xenophobia, to this fake nationalism. Uh, it doesn't work a lot of places, and it certainly hasn't worked in Virginia. No. Corey Stewart sort of stuck at 30 percent, and nobody's given him any money. And- no. I mean, Ed Gillespie tried this play at the—I uh, mean, Ed Gillespie was, by most accounts, sort of a moderate Republican who tried to remake himself into a a, 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 tr- a Trump person, and, and he got he got his head handed to him yeah, by, yeah. by Ralph Northam. Yeah. It just doesn't work. You know, I did this experiment the other day because I take the metro to work, and I just—I just, I was looking around the metro— and I just counted the number of men and women, and then I counted the number of people, again, who were sort of people of color. And you realize, like, we live in this amazingly diverse place. You represent one of the most diverse communities in the country. It's not to say we don't have problems, but we get along, and we find ways to get along with each other. And that's what America is. And we are so fortunate. You know, so my little district, second most educated, third wealthiest, and yet 37% speak a language other than English in their home. I visited our local elementary school in Alexandria the other day. It has the top scoring academically of all the Alexandria public schools. And yet when they have International Day last May, um, 400 kids represented 52 different countries. (laughs) Incredibly diverse. And that's what makes us so strong. That's what makes us strong. And that's another reason why um, that's something that's on the ballot this this year as well. So look, I I don't want to jinx ourselves um, because I we've we're all still in you know living through 2016. But uh, a lot has been said about what a possible Democratic Congress would focus on. What would what would your advice be to whoever that speaker is about what what the priorities ought to be? Uh, well, number one, healthcare. Yeah, uh, and in as a subset of healthcare, it's the affordability of premiums and what's happening there, but also. Uh, primarily the, the affordability of, of the drugs. And I think more than 90% right now are generics of, that are prescriptions. And yet some of these generics have ended up in the hands of, of monopolistic yeah. owners. The Martin Scraley is the, the famous yeah. thing. We've really got to get our hands around that. Uh, number two is infrastructure. Uh, we, we are in this unique situation where we have more jobs available than, than people applying but there's a mismatch, which is why they haven't all been filled. And we need to put the, the trades back to work. Yep. You know, our electrical workers, our iron workers, um, a lot of people that only have high school educations. And we have a you know, $4 trillion backlog in infrastructure. Uh, I think we're going to move forward with an ethics package. Um, we really want to drain the swamp. It does not, it's gotten worse, not better. 
Uh, and then I, I'm really excited that Nancy Pelosi, among others, have talked about bringing back the Select Committee on Climate. Yeah. Every day the newspapers have yet another story about how uh, our climate situation is worse than, than we thought. And with Trump withdrawing from Paris, with people like Scott Pruitt and Ryan Zinke out there, we've moved totally in the wrong direction at the federal level. Cities and states are still doing right. really well. Companies are doing really well. You've got ExxonMobil and BP coming out now for carbon pricing to try to reduce fossil fuel and pump up everything else. So in general, the world's doing okay, but our but our national leadership, our president, is awful. So. Well, I want to I want to ask you about health care and climate change. The climate change is an important one. We were just talking about this. I mean, uh, it, by many measures, there's more youth engagement in this election than previous ones, but it's still not what it should be. And and climate change. If if you're a young person and you think the issues that we're voting on don't matter, if we don't fix climate change now, you're not. Young people are not going to be able to fix this 20, 30 years from now. And I think most young people who are thinking thinking at all about public life and public policy really get it. And that's across the political spectrum. You know, the the older Republicans have fallen into this trap of the last ten years that climate change is a partisan issue and it's not, and it can't. I had an experience a couple of months ago um, to speak to the sort of young leaders that came out of the World Economic Forum, mm-hmm. and they were half Democrat or half on the left, half on the right. Every question was about climate change. Healthcare. Um, <laughs> uh, Congressman, you were, you've been there every single time, or at least the last couple of years, when the Republicans have voted against the ACA. What do you make of this now? They found religion. Apparently now they're all for protecting uh, pre-existing conditions. <laughs> kind of wish they'd been there years ago. <laughs> you know, this is originally a Republican plan that came out of Heritage Institute, and Mitt Romney passed it in Massachusetts. Um, yeah, but thank goodness that they see that Obamacare actually works. It does work. And people really appreciate all the many factors of it. And <clears throat> one of the reasons premiums are high right now is of the the successful assaults the Republicans have had, taking away the individual mandate, for right. example. So we only need to insure sick people, right. not all those healthy young people. Uh, but it is it is fascinating how they're all trying to clean up their bad records now in the campaign trail. Well, well they all voted against Social Security all those years ago. Now you can't touch it. So. Now, um, <laughs> Last time you and I had this conversation on the show, we talked, I think we were talking about Scott Pruitt at the time. Fortunately, Pruitt is now out. Zinke's now on the headlines, and, you know, uh, we were laughing. There's a story in the Post where even the White House, this ethically challenged White House, is now concerned that Zinke might have actually crossed the line, too. Um, I mean, and and to follow up on the conversation we just had with Austin, this is why oversight matters. These are the kinds of things uh, that, you know, we should focus on. You're on the House Natural Resources Committee. Yeah, I'm the the ranking Democrat on oversight uh, for for science. Right. And, and, you know, in the— my first term when President Obama was president and uh, the Republicans controlled the House, we had endless oversight yeah. meetings, a lot of them necessary, sure. responsible. It wasn't a bad thing. Uh, bringing Gina McCarthy in from the EPA to talk about her text messages to her children about what time she was coming home for dinner was a little ridiculous. And Benghazi went on forever <laughs> over, right. you know, uh, de- that was completely irresponsible. But so I'm hoping, and I, I really expect that, we will do aggressive oversight, but we're going to do it on important public policy issues, not to make political points. Right. We're not going to come out and do Benghazi revisited. So. And, and that's an important point that uh, Austin made. We were just talking about an op-ed that was in the um, Washington Post from last week from my former boss, or talking about my former boss, Henry Waxman, and the kind of the sensible oversight that 
needs to happen. This, this is not a partisan thing. It's about ensuring that government yeah. works for the people. Yeah, and in fact, I think I've had three or four different Republican chairs of oversight subcommittees since I've been there. And with everyone, I've worked cooperatively. And we're often on the same side. We want good government. We want people to be held accountable for the things they do wrong. Um, are you, um, regardless of how the elections turn out, maybe that's not possible to say, are you optimistic about what the next Congress holds? Or does it really depends on what, what happens? Yeah, to- if Republicans come in, I'm not optimistic at right. all. Uh, but if Democrats, yeah, very much so. I think uh, at, a, at the very first thing, we will be a- another stop, another balance to Trump's overuse of executive power. But I then also think that we can get some really meaningful things done, things that should have been done in a bipartisan way in this last. I, I think Paul Ryan wasted many opportunities to get things done with that were center right, center left. Uh, gun safety, easy thing. If you ever put a gun safety bill on the floor, Universal background yeah. checks, it would pass overwhelmingly. Yeah. No, I mean, I, uh, but, but they would never do it. So. No, and and there again, I I maintain maybe I'm naive that on immigration there is probably a bipartisan deal to be a- cut a- as well. Absolutely, and, and once again, uh, Ryan and McCarthy would would undermine themselves on it. Yeah, you know, there was so much chaos within the Republican committee, but there's a huge bipartisan consensus that we take care of the Dreamers right away. I think we'll do that in January, and then move forward on the kind of bipartisan immigration deal that the Senate passed a couple of years ago, and we never get a vote in the House on it. You know what is very funny? I mean, all the time that they spend trying to get a tax cut bill through, they got the bill through. Um, no one's talking about the tax cut bill anymore. <laughs> but imagine if that bill had been done in a bipartisan way that geared more of the brakes towards lower middle class people. This would be something that we could all run on. And everyone agreed that the 35% was probably <clears throat> the stated rate for corporations was too high. But we, we kept missing the fact that 25% of corporations paid zero corporate income tax. The effective rate was 13, not right. 35. It didn't need to go to 21. You could have taken it to 27 or 28. Corporations would have been thrilled. And you'd have had it much more available for the people that really needed it. I think with, with Connor Lamb's special election yeah. race, right, that was sort of the first example of when you, you how do you brag about a bill where 83% of the benefit went to the top 1% of Americans? I, and I mean, where most Americans saw no benefit. No, and I remind people when they were selling this bill a year ago, they said it would provide a $4,000 pay increase to people. I defy anyone who does not make several million dollars to show me how you got a $4,000 pay increase. And, and and they said these tax cuts would pay for themselves and we're nearing trillion dollar deficits. And it's very yeah. clear they're not paying for themselves. And if you move to my congressional district, just Northern Virginia, yeah. virtually every family, middle class plus, is going to pay more because they took away the deduction of state and local income taxes. And so that just means a huge, I think, little Falls Church, four four to $5,000 increase in taxes paid, federal taxes paid by the yeah. folks. So I, with the last couple of minutes we have, I just want to turn back to the issue of hand, which is elections. Um, we in Virginia know about close elections. I, I remember when Doug Wilder was first elected. I think he got elected by about 7,000 votes. 2,100. 2,100. Yeah. All right, we know this better than I do. Yeah. Oh, uh, I was there. Oh, yeah, I, I, know, I know you were. Uh, and then we, we saw what happened last year in the House of Delegates where one seat was tied. We drew lots, and that really basically decided to control the House of Delegates. There's a, so many. I have two other friends in Virginia, uh, chairman of the Board of Supervisors in Montgomery County, down where Virginia Tech is, chairman of the Board of Supervisors in Henry County, who both had tie elections and both lost on coin tosses. So just that one vote in many different cases. George Allen, who was our governor, yeah. of course, and senator, won his first election by five votes. 
a Jim Scott who served for years and years won his first election by one vote. There, it really makes an enormous difference. Yeah, and so, I mean, we, we, we keep saying this over and over again. We can't stress this enough. I mean, if you have the opportunity to spend some time over the next four days volunteering, oh, yeah. you got to do it, actually. Absolutely. It, it isn't, you know... I lost the governor's race by 200,000 votes. I didn't have to worry about it. <laughs> but on, a couple of years later, Cree Deeds lost the attorney general's race by 331 votes. And we thought, my God, in the city of Alexandria, we could have overcome that 331 if we'd had Ray, Ray doing our precinct yeah. work. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I tell people, like, uh, you know, even for something that's decided by 10,000 votes, I mean, I don't know how many precincts there are in Arlington, like, I don't know. 80, 90, whatever, yeah, whatever, yeah. whatever there are. Think about how many precincts there are in a state, and if it's just simply one vote per precinct, um, that 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 could make the, the the maker difference. But what what happens in the House of Delegates? And and you know we ended up getting Medicaid expanded, um, but that wasn't a foregone conclusion, and that really mm-hmm. that one vote made a big difference. Yeah, back 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 to Doug Wilder. Yeah, it may have been six thousand because yeah. now that I think about it, there are twenty one hundred precincts, and we talked about three votes right. per precinct. <laughs> Which is really just one and a half switching. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah, that's right. So, yeah, there's there's a lot at stake in this election. Any final words to the uh, listeners out there about what they ought oh, to be doing? Oh, but please, if you, <laughs> if you don't vote, you don't count. It's all about that. And we look uh, – I'm so jealous of, of Colorado, Oregon, and Washington oh, have mail-in God. ballots. And they, get, they don't get 100%, yeah. but they get significantly more than we get in the rest of the place. And I think if we can take back the Virginia General Assembly next year, that'll be my highest priority from the outside. Is no, I mean, my, do my so. wife lives in Seattle and, and she, you know, they, they send it to her in the mail and she, all she has to do is put it right back in the mail. And if you don't have a postage stamp, there's places you can drop it off. It's the easiest possible. Th- it, yeah. This should happen everywhere. And f- fortunately, we have we, it's technically not early voting in Virginia. It's early absentee, which helps. And there, there are many ways that you can show up yeah. so you don't have to wait till Election Day. What one final thought, sure. if you have a second, is that Please. you know when turnout's greater than fifty percent, Democrats win. Yeah, less than forty percent, Republicans win. So when democracy actually works, we get our values expressed in elected officials. That's a perfect way to end this segment, uh, Congressman Don Beyer. Thank you again for not only your service to the country but the important work you're doing. Uh, this is Chris Liu guest hosting for Bill Press on Friday. We'll be back shortly with Rebecca Vallis. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Good morning, everyone. It's Chris Luke, guest hosting for Bill Press on Friday morning. Uh, we have about another half hour left, and we've got a great guest who we're going to get to shortly. But we on social media have asked a bunch of questions. We've got a poll up. Uh, Rada, what do we have? Yes, so we have lots of things going on on Twitter right now. We have a poll up, which you can still vote on. Um, What's your number one issue heading into Election Day? Have your voice heard at BP Show. We also asked for any inspirational voting stories, and we have gotten a few. So we have Karen, who said, Told I was sent a mail-in ballot, but I was offered a provisional ballot. I refused it and insisted that they clear it with the clerk's office. It took almost 30 minutes, but I got a ballot and I voted blue. 
Oh, that's fantastic. Which is fantastic. We also have our friend Smacky Pipe who said, my mom will be 87 next week. She is tempor- She temporarily had her license suspended due to a lag in her yearly eye exam results being sent to the state. She said, hell with it. And she took a chance, drove herself to the polls to vote yesterday, and she voted straight Democrat down the line. <laughs> I love that Amazing. Story. Amazing story. Well, we are uh, privileged to be joined by Rebecca Vallis. Uh, Rebecca is the vice president for poverty to prosperity program at the Center for American Progress and the host of the Off Kilter podcast. Rebecca, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Uh, Great seeing you in the host chair. Always. You know, you need to be doing this sometime. <laughs> you I can know. keep trying to I get know. me we there. We keep trying to get Rebecca to do this. Uh, you can follow her on Twitter at, at Rebecca Vallis, as she just told Don Byer. It's like Dallas, but with a V. So we're trying to keep up with... Um, Breaking news, the uh, October jobs numbers just came out, 250,000, which as the former Deputy Secretary of Labor, I will tell you that's a good number. I've not seen the wage numbers yet, which I think I would kind of like to see. Um, uh, but it, it, I think it speaks to a couple of things. I mean, the, the top line economic numbers have been very strong, but I'm not sure it tells the complete story, Rebecca, and I know this is something you know very well. No, you're exactly right, Chris. I mean, to hear President Trump talk about it, right, the Trump economy, as he likes to call it, is this amazing economy. It's going gangbusters. And he keeps pointing to headline statistics like the jobs numbers, like the unemployment rate. And and those numbers are absolutely, as you said, incredibly strong right now. But what's missing in that picture that he and his advisors are painting is any discussion of wages. And that is a huge gaping hole in, in the, the story about the booming economy. And so what we're actually seeing is that everyday Americans and pretty much everyone who's not some multimillionaire is seeing their wages either flat or actually declining in real terms. That's the story on wages. And so we've actually got somewhere between half of this country and 80 percent of households in this country literally living paycheck to paycheck. Folks are working two, three, four jobs trying to make ends meet because their wages aren't keeping pace with the basic pillars of a middle-class lifestyle. 140 million Americans are are now currently living in poverty or are right on the edge of poverty. And that, by my standards, Chris, is not a booming economy. No, and it's it's telling because uh, this president is not running right now based on tax cuts. He's not basically running on jobs. He's running on fear. And we've been chuckling. The only time I'll ever watch Fox News is when I'm guest hosting because they have it on here. (laughs) Uh, I think Fox News did literally 15 seconds on the jobs numbers. And now the scroll is first 100 troops arrive at the southern border. So they understand that the top line numbers, while good, and we should obviously celebrate people uh, gaining jobs, does not tell the full story. And, And you talked about real wages going down. At the same time that healthcare costs go up, housing costs, energy costs, the cost of everything else goes up along the way. That's exactly right. And, and so I think to, to make that connection to immigration a little more explicit, what we're seeing from Trump and what we're seeing from, from his Republican allies, but particularly Trump, is this sort of fear-mongering closing argument, right? Trump, I think, had been expecting and, and his, his advisors had been expecting that they were that Republicans were going to be running on the tax law. That's their signature legislative achievement from from the, the Congress that we've uh, been enduring for the past 
a couple of years um, and from President Trump's time in the White House. And yet they've realized that tax law is massively unpopular with the American people, as is obviously their attempt to take health care away from tens of millions of Americans. So while we're watching Democrats gain steam and rise in the polls, really making Republicans nervous about what's going to happen next week in the midterms, we're watching Trump as sort of a Hail Mary attempt to rile up the base, try to fearmonger around immigration in every way he possibly can. That's his sort of last ditch effort to distract from the fact that Republicans are championing an agenda that nobody except their donor class wants to see be the law of the land. And that's their desperate effort to try to avoid getting pink slips handed to them next week at the ballot. You know, we were just talking with Congressman Beyer, you know, reminding people that when the Republicans sold the tax bill, they said this would lead to a $4,000 pay increase for workers. It has not. I, I defy you to find a worker who does not uh, who makes under a million or several million dollars that got a $4,000 pay increase. And, and what is f- funny right now is 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 this campaign tactic of Republican House members who voted against the ACA multiple times now to say somehow, oh, they're all for protecting people with pre-existing conditions. That's kind of incredible. It's it's incredible. It, it defies logic. It defies facts. You've actually got 36 uh, of the uh, Republicans in the tightest congressional races up next week who are running almost identical campaign ads, all claiming that they are protecting people with pre-existing conditions because they've realized that that's one of the most popular parts of the Affordable Care Act that they've all been trying to repeal. Yeah. Now, mind you, of those 36 who are running those identical lying ads, all but four have (laughs) voted at least once and several of them multiple times to repeal the Affordable Care Act and its underlying protections for pre-existing conditions. So it's this massive lie that they're perpetrating as a desperate effort to keep control of the House. So I will. we we are here with Rebecca Vallis from the Center for American Progress. And I know all these things that Rebecca says because I follow Rebecca on Twitter. (laughs) So I hope people follow her at at Rebecca Vallis. This is Chris Liu, guest hosting for Bill Press. Uh, you can follow me at Chris Liu, uh 44 I will make one shameless plug, which I, I have a, uh, I just got an email from um, CNBC that has my uh, op-ed just posted on the CNBC website. It's about how to raise wages uh, by focusing on overtime pay for workers. Um, we will tweet it out. Uh, please. Thank you. Um, if, again, I, 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 I don't want to jinx ourselves. Um, if there then is, you should be knocking, knocking on the surface like, that I don't think is actually no, real wood. I, I, I'd love to say something. Close, close enough. <laughs> what what would the policies what what policies should a Democratic Congress focus on to start to um, right this ship? Well, you know, you you mentioned before that Trump had promised that his tax law was going to result in some kind of a four thousand dollar pay increase for your average worker. You also note you you pointed that that pointed out that that hasn't materialized. Something that's been interesting to me in the past couple of weeks is that Trump has been out there on the campaign trail, basically making up some new middle class tax cut uh, <laughs> that he says is going to go into effect in the coming weeks, even though Congress isn't in session. I mean, just adding to 
to the layers of desperate lies that are being told when you actually look at what the American people care about. And I think that's where we should start as we think about what would a Democratic Congress or at least even a Democratic House take up. Well, for starters, there's there's you know control of the gavels, right, means right. investigatory authority, which right. is a big deal, sure. particularly given that Republicans haven't seemed all that interested in the fact that the Trump family seems to have been <laughs> cheating on their taxes in ways that might actually be illegal following that New York Times expose from some number of weeks ago. Trump still hasn't released his tax returns, so it might sound old hat at this point, but I would hope Democrats would start to use some of that new authority, as I knock on wood, to get the president to release his tax returns so we actually know what's in them. That would be a, a good place to start. But we could also listen to the American people, the opposite of what Republicans yeah. in power have been doing for the past couple of years, uh, and actually start to think about policies to boost wages like you were describing. I'd love to hear, because I haven't seen your op-ed yet, yeah. what you point to as the specific policies, apart from, say, raising the minimum wage yeah. that hasn't uh, budged in almost a decade and thus has has actually resulted in minimum wage workers losing uh, about $2,300 yeah. in pay every year. That's the pay cut people are taking because Republicans have stymied efforts to raise the federal minimum wage. That needs to be high on, on Democrats' list, along with yeah. cleaning up corruption, uh, addressing health care, uh, and particularly prescription drug costs, and, and a range of other types of excuse me, types of priorities. But Chris, what's in what's in that op-ed? Well, first of all, I'm glad you mentioned the minimum wage. I don't know if you saw Larry Kudlow yesterday said the minimum wage is, quote unquote, a terrible idea. Uh, and the minimum wage is at 725. When I was the deputy secretary of labor, I used to have a poster in my office from when the a Department of Labor poster from the minimum when the minimum wage was raised to 75 cents during the Truman administration. Mm -hmm. And while 75 cents seems like not a lot of money, uh, that has more buying power than 725 does now. There's this amazing statistic that there's nowhere in the country where you can get a two-bedroom apartment uh, earning minimum wage or afford a two-bedroom apartment. Uh, my op-ed is actually talking about overtime pay. Mm. Um, in this country right now, if you are if you earn over $23,000, if you are characterized as, quote-unquote, a manager, you could be asked to work 40, 50, 60, 70 hours and not get overtime pay. And what it means to be a manager is you could be the uh, Dunkin' Donuts cashier, uh, but your managerial responsibility is opening the store in the morning. They'll classify you as an assistant manager, and they'll make you work more than uh, 40 hours without overtime. Uh, during the Obama administration, we uh, proposed raising that threshold, basically doubling it from about 23000 to 47000 um, the Trump administration pulled that back once they got came into office. Uh, there's about four million people who would get a pay raise uh, in this country right now. Uh, it's really been called the raising overtime pay is considered the um, raising the minimum wage for the middle class. So um, uh, thank you for letting me plug. Um, <laughs> well, and I'm excited to read it and a hugely important policy that so many of us were so excited to yeah. see during the Obama years and which we'd like to see actually be able to take effect. No, and good, sensible policies that I, you know, again, we, we just had this conversation with uh, Congressman Byer. I mean, if, if they had done tax cuts in a bipartisan way, we could have come up with a much more rational way to have done this in a way that would have put more money into people's pockets 
might not have exploded the deficits to the point where we're going to have trillion dollar deficits. And now they're basically saying now to cut that, to make up the deficit, we're going to cut Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid. And, you know, and, and we, we, the last time we were on, we talked about food uh, work requirements on SNAP and all of the other ways that they're trying to undercut the social safety net. No, that's that's exactly right. I mean, I think we, we always knew that the agenda on taxes was very much connected to the Republican agenda to dismantle Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. It's this sort of two-step dance, right? right? Step one is jack up the deficit massively, the deficit that they, Republicans, claim to hate by giving huge tax cuts to the wealthy and to wealthy corporations. And, and then step two is turn around and say, oh, my God, look at these deficits. We can't <laughs> afford these deficits. And that's exactly what we're watching Larry Kudlow and Mitch McConnell and, and others in the Republican Party now doing is, is pointing at the boogeyman they created and trying to say that the problem is programs that Americans rely on to be able to uh, have a dignified retirement and afford health care and afford prescription drugs and make sure that grandma's able to be in the nursing home, right, and not not uh, in a, a care situation that's untenable, all these kinds of really popular policies. So again, just this, this agenda that is completely the opposite of what Americans want, including, and this is part of what's interesting, some of the recent polling coming out reconfirming that even Republican voters hate this agenda. Yeah. They hate the tax law, and they hate the idea of cutting Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid to pay for that huge hole Republicans just blue in the deficit. So that's why we're not hearing that on the campaign trail from Republican candidates. And we're certainly not hearing it from Trump right now. Anyone who's out on the stump is really doing this lying on health care thing we were talking about before, uh, coupled with this this fear mongering on immigration. And, and, and it's because they are starting to realize not just how unpopular their policies are, but that there might actually be political consequences if Americans realize that they're going to continue steadfastly to try to pursue that agenda if they retain yeah. power. The the fear mongering on immigrants is uh, we've been watching this on TV all morning um, is troubling on so many levels. I mean, there was a, a poll that just came out of uh, of Hispanic Americans talking. Uh, these are law abiding citizens. I, I can't remember what the stat is. It's like three out of ten or four out of ten have been told at some point either been the subject of discrimination or been told to go back to your country or been um, shamed or embarrassed or speaking Spanish in public, and that's not who our country is. And and so there's so much on the ballot. There's policies on the ballot, but there are values on the ballot as well. And that's so troubling about where the discourse in this country is going right now. And Trump is sort of leading that cause from his bully pulpit in the White House in ways that, that I don't know that any of us can remember seeing from a sitting president before. He gave a speech yesterday that was one of the, it was packed with just this horrible, ugly, xenophobic rhetoric. Um, I mean, he, he actually disclosed that he has given border agents the, the, um, uh, the direction that they should, if they're confronted by uh, or see folks who are part of that migrant care 
caravan that Trump is so obsessed with and and trying to to make into this scary specter. Um, it, apparently, he's directed border agents that if someone say throws a rock at them, they should be treated as though they are holding a rifle and are armed. That is the way that he is trying to portray these individuals who, by the way, are, are effectively seeking asylum. They're yeah. fleeing dangerous home countries, trying to be safe here in the United States. Uh, and he's he's trying to make them into some kind of terrifying, uh, uh, scary villain uh, that's a threat to our country. That's what he's trying to do with this rhetoric. And it's unfortunate and really sad hearing you describe the kinds of consequences that that's having for immigrants who are living yeah. here in the United States because of the fear and, and rage and resentment that's being incited. There is um, on the, the rocks are rifles line that he sort of gave that, you know, uh, it, it has really kind of apparently triggered a lot of consternation among the military because that is completely at odds with all of their guidances, protocols. I mean, somebody throws a rock at you uh, and you're in the military, you don't fire back as a typical matter. And um, it, it's it's troubling on a lot of levels. Um, we've been talking all morning about voting and why voting matters. And, you know, we've talked about with Austin Evers about oversight and the oversight that could happen. We've been talking to Don Beyer about policies and values and with you more about policies. Uh, have you voted yet? I have not <laughs> voted yet. Uh, I'm, I'm not I'm, being judged. Well, I, I would be judged. <laughs> if you told me you weren't voting, I would be very judgy, but I'm not judging your time. Oh, I'm definitely voting, but I, I am planning to vote on Tuesday. Okay. Um, that That's what I'm planning to vote. And I, I'm going with some friends. So okay. that's what we're planning to do, that and some GOTV. Okay. I, we've been talking all about GOTV this morning as well. And, as you and, should and be. And I'm going to say this a hundred more times so I have the chance in the next 10 minutes. Uh, you know, if you were out there marching for women's rights, for immigrant rights, for gun safety, whatever time you spent marching, getting to the march, getting home, preparing your poster board, uh, talking to your friends, venting on Facebook, whatever it is, spend that amount of time or more uh, out there, uh, GOTV, because the truth of the matter is all that marching doesn't do any good uh, unless we make our voices known at the ballot box. And so I'm glad to hear you're doing GOTV as That's well. That's exactly right, Chris. Um, you and I emailed, and I, you, I asked you to give me some um, local, state and local initiatives um, that are on the ballot. I think this is important because I want people to understand, okay, when you go and vote, uh, obviously vote for, you know, the member of Congress or governor or whatever, and then learn the issues, even if you're in a, a jurisdiction that, you know, the, the, the race doesn't really matter because it's going to go one way or another, vote. But then pay attention to the other issues. And there are a lot of local initiatives on the ballot. That's exactly right. So I think most of the attention in, in uh, election cycles usually gets paid to the people who are on the ballot, the people running for Congress, for office at the state level. But there's also a whole slew of policies that are on state and local ballots next week. And a number of those are really, really worth watching and, and talking about. And I'd love to talk about a few of them. Yeah, please. Go tell, tell, talk, tell the listeners about a couple of these. Fantastic. So here we are talking about health care and how in so many ways this is a health care election. Well, actually, in three states, we see Medicaid expansion on the ballot. And one of those states is particularly interesting because that's the state of Idaho, very, very ruby red right. state of Idaho. And there the governor has actually endorsed right. the idea of Medicaid expansion, which is now on the ballot. So here yet again, just such a tremendous contrast between the agenda we're seeing from leaders in Washington 
Washington and the Republican Party of take health care away from as many people as possible, especially through Medicaid, which they're still trying to dismantle and which Trump is trying to help them dismantle from his perch in the White House. And yet repeatedly when put to the voters, people say across party lines, no, we want to see Medicaid expanded under the Affordable Care Act. And, and that's going to be interesting to watch in, in those states, particularly in Idaho. There's also, uh, back to that that conversation we were having about wages, we're seeing on the ballot in a couple of places, minimum wage increases, mm-hmm. which time and again, oh, 80% of Americans yeah. want to see the minimum wage increased. So states are, of course, yeah. stepping into the breach where Washington has failed because of right. Republican opposition. So Arkansas and Missouri, two states to watch there as yeah. the minimum wage continues to gain popularity and steam. Um, but there's a couple of really interesting criminal justice-related ballot measures that I want to spend a minute talking about. One actually has to do with voting itself. There's been all of this attention rightly paid to the goat rodeo playing out in Florida right now around voter suppression, particularly of communities of color. Um, But meanwhile, something that doesn't get nearly enough attention in the context of elections is all of the Americans across this country who are barred from voting legally because they have some kind of criminal record. And one of the states that is a hotbed of voter suppression through that type of policy is Florida. It's actually one of three states nationwide that bars you for your entire life from voting if you have a felony conviction. No matter whether you've paid your debt to society, finished your sentence, you never get that right back to vote. On Florida's ballot is a measure that would restore voting rights to about 1.4 million Floridians, the vast majority of whom are people of color, a huge opportunity there to expand voting rights. We are also seeing on on North Dakota's ballot um, marijuana legalization, another extremely popular type Mm -hmm. of policy that Americans of both parties support. And importantly, that ballot measure would also go back in time and and actually correct some of the damage that has been wreaked in people's lives by sealing records that people have uh, that can be a barrier to employment and housing and, and more. And then lastly, I'll mention in Ohio, there is a ballot measure that I'm really excited excited about. It's a lot like Prop 47 that we saw a couple years back in California. It would reclassify certain drug felonies to be misdemeanors. Really, really important, again, for some of the same reasons as that measure in North Dakota because of the legacy of mass incarceration and what it's doing in people's lives. You know, I've become, you know, as somebody who has spent his entire uh, government and political career in Washington, uh, in the federal government. Uh, I've become an, a huge fan of state and local government, especially over the last couple of years, and especially state ballot initiatives. It is such a powerful way for the American people to take back power from special interests. But we we saw this play out in Maine, where the, the voters uh, voted to expand Medicaid, and then the governor refused to do it notwithstanding like multiple court decisions telling him he had to do it. There is a special place in hell for Governor Paul LePage, who thankfully is on his way out. Uh, On many levels. On many levels. Um, But just to sort of put in human terms what's on the line when we're talking about Medicaid expansion, a colleague of mine at the Center for American Progress actually put some analysis out last week. Uh, Her name is Rachel West, and she's a brilliant economist. I'll give her a plug here. Um, And she found in her analysis that if all... uh, states in this country were to expand Medicaid, there are still 17 holdout states that are refusing for ideological reasons to to expand Medicaid. If all of those states were to finally take the step of expanding Medicaid, we would save 14,000 American lives every single year. Keep that in mind. 
every time you're reminded of the Republicans who, for ideological reasons, are refusing to allow people to have health insurance under yeah. the law. I mean, this is not just a good policy. It's a moral issue as well. And, uh, you know, budgets, policies are a reflection of our country's value. And the fact that we have been fighting so hard not only to protect the ACA, but to try to expand it. Um, uh, it, I mean, I think speaks volumes about where our country still is and how far we have to go right now. Um, so we are winding down right now. We've got about a minute and a half left. Uh, another shameless plug, you either want to make for yourself or voting or preferably both. <laughs> Uh, how about if I do both? Please. So uh, I will make a shameless plug for voting because that is all we should be talking about all and we thinking about, about and doing for the next several days. If you haven't voted yet, please go vote. Please tell your friends to vote, your family members. I am jealous of people who don't live in D.C. and who are in some of the states where they have uh, the ability to make even a more significant impact. Um, uh, but no matter where you live, no matter uh, what you believe, please go and vote. Um, but I'll, I'll make a connected plug to the show that I host, which is uh, the Center for American Progress Action Fund's weekly show about poverty and inequality and everything it intersects, it intersects with. That show is called Off Kilter. You can find us on Twitter at Off Kilter Show. And this week, we actually do a deep dive into those ballot measures that we were just talking okay. about, as well as some more. Um, and we also have on Professor Carol Anderson, uh, who you've probably seen on The Daily Show and elsewhere, talking about white rage and the historical context there. This is Chris Liu, uh, guest hosting for Bill Press on Friday. We've had Rebecca Vallis for the cent from the Center for American Progress. You can follow her at Rebecca Vallis. You can follow me at ChrisLiu44. Have a great day and go vote. This is The Bill Press Show.